episode of the Stock Market Options Trading Podcast, we're going to talk about running a stock market insurance company using put options with one of the members over at StockMarketOptionsTrading.net. StockMarketOptionsTrading.net is a free network. It operates kind of like a Facebook group, but without all the ads, spam, trolls, stock jocks, none of that noise is over there. And what this does is allows us to have meaningful discussions around stock and options in a respectful manner. That's what we're doing over there. After listening to this episode, I invite you to join us over there where you can ask questions to myself or Jeff, who we're going to be talking to here in a minute, about anything in this episode or anything about stocks and options in general. I look forward to hearing from you over at the website. Again, that's stockmarketoptiontrading.net. Now, listen, before we get started, you need to know that everything on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial advice. Neither I or Jeff are financial advisors. We are simply independent retail traders making money in the stock market. And real quick, it would mean the world to me if you could take 23 seconds and leave a five-star review of the podcast over on Apple or Google or Amazon or Spotify, whatever podcast player you're listening with, leaving a review can really help the show get heard by more independent retail traders like you and I. And I'd be super thankful if you could do that. If you want to support the show even further, come join me over on Patreon at patreon.com slash vertical spread options trading for more details. Now let's get into my conversation with Jeff about running a stock market insurance company using put options and be sure to check out episode two of this podcast for more details around the stock market insurance company concept. I explained, I did a whole episode on that. All right, let's get into my conversation with Jeff and we're starting right now. All right, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. I, I know we had a conversation about your strategy and I wanted to kind of bring you on because you know one of the interesting things is you know we're we're trading somewhat in a similar manner but our approach is completely different and um, so I wanted to kind of just bring you on and highlight that there are different ways to to skin a cat I guess and um, so thanks for joining me I'm gonna we're gonna start off with a, a something fun um, a little icebreaker question so hope you'll you'll enjoy <laughs> you'll indulge me if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Wow, one food. I mean, are, are cavities or uh, you know high blood pressure a consideration here, or is it just <laughs> based on flavor that we're talking about? <laughs> I, I guess you know that's up to you. I guess that would be. Your yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm gonna. I'm kind of a, a veggies, rice, and meat guy, so I'm. I'm gonna say. Uh, I'm gonna say chicken. I'm gonna go boring. Chicken? Yeah, I'm gonna say chicken. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this and like I couldn't narrow it down to that specific. So I was I was like Mexican food. <laughs> or like, ah, or like tacos <laughs> or whatever. So um that's funny. All right, cool. Thanks, thanks for uh thanks for playing with me on that one. So yeah, sure um just before we get into your strategy, tell me a little bit about how you got into trading and investing. Uh, and and kind of how long you've been been doing this and um, yeah kind of interested to know I always ask how people got into options especially because it's uh, it is still kind of obscure although it seems more popular now yep. but let me know how you got into it yeah been investing in 401ks and IRAs for oh, probably 20 years at this point um, I'm 45 um, but I've always been interested in saving and investing. My mom was a banker. So, you know, it was kind of drummed into us at a, at a young age that we needed to save. And, and, you know, I understood interest and compounding interest very early on, I think, because of those experiences with her. Um, when it comes to options, though, I didn't actually get involved in options until uh, early 2019. And um, the specific moment, I remember it, was um, I was watching the yield curves and the yield curves inverted, I think it was in March of 2019. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I was talking with some coworkers and I'm like, man, from everything I've read, that's the sign of a recession might be coming. And so I started thinking to myself, well, crud, you know, I'm, I've got this 401k that I've been investing in at that point for 20 something years. And I'm like, how, how would I protect that? And so I did a Google search and I said, who makes money during recessions? And I started getting a lot of stories about investors who had, who had hedged appropriately using 
put options on okay. SPX. I mean, we're talking like the national level guys who, you know, who actually made millions or billions of dollars uh, by identifying the crash early on. Right. Um, or really identifying when things were overbought. And, you know, I, and I said, how options? So just started doing some, some real basic searches and got turned on to um, kind of my, my first two early influences was Option Alpha mm -hmm. and some of the very early training, uh, the basic videos. And it, it actually, it felt like it took me a long time to actually grasp what it really was and how it all actually worked. Um, and the other one was I found some uh, early videos that you had put out. Mm. And, uh, nice. uh, and so between those two, I think a lot of things clicked early on on the concept of selling put credit spreads mm -hmm. as, uh, as insurance, right? right. So you're, the, the way I look at it is you're, you're issuing a limited liability insurance into the market. It's not unlimited insurance, right? Because if the market blows all the way through it, you've got a max payment that you would put out. Yeah, you got to pay. Yeah, right. You got to pay, but gotta, it's not unlimited based on how far down the market goes. Right. It's gonna it's gonna have a limit, and so you know that appealed to me early on. Um, you know that just through ignorance or inexperience that I wouldn't make some mistake that would just completely wipe out my account. Right. Um, so, you know, I started dabbling in, the, in a couple of simple trades in, uh, in April and really started stumbling onto the roots of, um, of what I'm doing now, uh, the, the basis of it, um, just before uh, the whole trade war with, uh, with China got going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the market went down, I think, for 11 days straight two days after I placed my first, uh, my first credit spread <laughs> trades based on, you know, the strategy that I had in, in, yeah. in mind. Now I have, a, I have uh, a similar experience with my first, uh, spread, you know, 10, whatever yeah. years ago, the first one did not, <laughs> did not make money. <laughs> well, I, I got lucky, you know, I, I ended up holding on and I was, I was already doing some element of statistical processing on, on the data sets. Um, and and I kept watching it, and and over the space of the of a, of a few weeks, um, even though it was wildly down, um, I didn't have that much at risk. You know, it was maybe a couple thousand dollars total, and uh, and then the market started coming back, and I actually ended up making it to expiration on every one of those initial positions, um, and they expired worthless. Nice. So you know, as a seller, that was a really good feeling to uh, to come out with a with a hundred percent win rate, even through that sort of uh, downturn. Right. Yeah. That's that's interesting because I know we you know the, the couple of things that the stock market insurance you know I've talked about that before on this podcast and I know we we've read a couple of the same books. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because you you got into options for protection. Sounds like you were googling for potential protection for uh, in a recession, but you ended up becoming you, you becoming the seller. Now now yeah. you're not as worried about protecting, and maybe you still do, you know. But um, do you think when you read those articles about big hedge funds or whatever who were buying puts and how they made all this money, do you think that they really were are good market timers, or do you think they they were implementing kind of a perma perma hedge carry hedge trade that we we'll probably talk about here in a minute? Um, you know, because when you read the articles yeah. and because they only tell you that the one, about the one trade, oh, so-and-so made right. 10 billions on put options, but it's like, okay, well, was he losing? I think it was in the big short um, where, you know, he was losing a million dollars a month until it finally hit, you know, do you think right. that was the case or? Yeah, or, I, I do. I yeah. do. Um, I mean, I, I think that those, those initial articles are not really what I based everything on it would yeah. it more made me recognize there was something I needed to learn about that um, that I just didn't know about before and I wanted to understand how did this work how did it how did everything function and as you start getting into the nuts and bolts of it right it, it can get really complicated really fast and then it just kind of became a, a desire to learn more about what I couldn't figure out. Cause I've, I've always considered myself at least semi-intelligent yeah. and I can usually <laughs> figure most things out. And this one I struggled with quite a bit for, for probably the first month. And it, and I still remember when it finally clicked that, um, you know, that you have two different prices, you're selling the high price and buying back the lower price and, and you make the money that's in between those two spreads mm -hmm. or, or in between those two strikes. Um, 
when it finally clicked for me, it was, you know, probably a couple of weeks into all of my studying. And I just, again, it wasn't, it wasn't making sense. And once that clicked, it felt like everything started coming a lot faster. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we yeah, all go through that. And yeah, you know, options are very, um, there's so many, so many ways to put them together when you're trying to be a net seller, I think in general is difficult. And I still get questions a lot, um, about, um, you know, when you, just the idea that you're selling something and you're trying to buy it back for cheaper. It, it's, it's a reverse concept for most people. It's a, it's, it's sort of a depreciation as opposed to you buying a stock, you want it to go up. So I right. think that that starts just being able to think about that is, is a difference uh, for a lot of people, but, but real quick, before we get into the strategy, what's your educational career background? I'm kind of curious because we're going to yeah. talk about standard deviations, very, you know, <laughs> quote unquote mathematical. Yeah. So I'm curious as to, you know, yeah. where you're coming from. Yeah. So I, um, uh, I initially studied, um, uh, computer science. Um, I was positive. I wanted to be a programmer, uh, from high school through, well, through about the first quarter of college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty quickly, I realized I did not want to be a programmer. And, um, I actually found my way, uh, into, uh, my college's, uh, printing, uh, major. So, uh, you know, think lithographic printing and digital, uh, uh, printing. And it was at the time in the, in the late nineties, that industry in particular was going through a huge technological revolution. So you're getting away from a lot of very manual handling of film and things like that. And, and right. having to, to craft a page that was going to be printed, say for a magazine. Mm -hmm. And you were starting to get a lot more, uh, electronic, uh, pre-press types of innovations. And so it, it appealed to me with my background with um, a lot of the, the computer programming and computer science. Um, but I'll say my work with spreadsheets and data actually goes back to 1989 or 88 um, when I started working with Quattro Pro uh, very early on um, for something very simple for, I think I was in seventh, it was between seventh and eighth grade. Mm. And my mom gave me an assignment that she thought was going to keep me busy for the whole summer, which was to, um, I think as she put it to put my comic book collection into the computer or something. Mm. And I, I think it took a week and I was done, <laughs> wow. but then, you know, I had price guides and I could update the price and, and I could track, you know, the value of this collection. So this idea of using data to, um, to track information and especially when it comes to financial well-being mm -hmm. uh, has kind of always been a part of what I do and who I am. Just kind of, I think how my brain processes things. Yeah. I, I read something, this was a long time ago, except Microsoft Excel was one of those products that actually helped keep Microsoft in business because hmm. back, back when the operating systems were still kind of, you know, you had Apple and, uh, you know, just various things. And when, when Microsoft came out with Excel, it really, it really helped their computer business because no one had ever really seen it. It's still the dominant, um, you know, spreadsheet platform or whatever you want to call it yep. today. So th that was a big deal for them. So, all right, cool. So tell me a little bit about your trading approach. I know yeah. you use, I, I'll throw out a few words here because that you've kind of talked me about. I know you're using uh, standard deviation and you're selling SPX put credit spreads kind of in general, which is very similar to what I do in, in a different, um, I, I do different DTEs. You got, you've seen you know what I do, but sure. um, so talk to me a little bit about your approach to you know finding the right strike and the tool you're using, and how how you're sort of making those how you're making those trading decisions um, that that give you the confidence to take those trades. Um, sure. So I'd love to hear it. Let me let me maybe back up a little bit sure. and give you some of my my bigger picture philosophy because then I think that the, that my approach will make a lot more sense. Okay, so. You know, I think I, I think I brought this question up to you the last time we talked, and it, it was the kind of the fundamental question: what drives the markets over the long term, right? If we're talking over, you know, three to six quarters, you know, two to three years out, most of us, I think, would say, well, you know, the, how companies are doing, if they're making profits, if they're growing, uh, economic outlook. You know, there's a lot of talk about inflation right now, and as that stuff 
you know, all moves along that the markets generally over the long term are going to respond to those sorts of big picture stimulus. But when I when I started watching the markets a lot closer, you know, five, 10 years ago, what drives the markets over the short term, I believe, is it tends to be irrational fear and exuberance on a daily basis, right? Or every couple of days, you get some new news report and you see what appears to be a wildly disproportionate reaction to the news being presented. And that that always had me just shaking my head. And so, you know, the, the challenge when you're, when you're looking at trading short-term uh, options or credit spreads is how, how do you know what to expect? And that's where, um, you know, I, I jokingly say, you know, statistics to the rescue and, mm. you know, wait for everybody to start groaning, it, myself included, because if I had told you, if I had made that statement 25 years ago when I was failing statistics as a computer science major, um, I, I would have thought that I was crazy. Mm. But there's a, there's a couple of simple elements, I think, that, that we can look at that, you know, help us, uh, help us understand what we want to do in the market. Right. So, you know, we all know what an average is, right? You add up all of your results and you divide by the number of results and you have an average, you have an arithmetic mean. And it's interesting to me that like, if you look at uh, thinkorswim and you're looking out, say 60 days, uh, 60 day DTE, it puts at the money exactly at a 50, 50, uh, probability of, of expiring in the money or out of the money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I, as I started going through and looking at the, you know, at, at, at what the stock market has done 60 days later, when you look at really large sets of data, that average tends to be, you know, between one and say 3% higher. And so, you know, I started, I started questioning a lot of what I was seeing in Thinkorswim. And, and that's, I think, what led me to look at, at the actual data and then make decisions based on the data that I was seeing based on market conditions. So to, to talk about what's a standard deviation, right? So it's just a measure of how much variation you have in a set of data from that average, that average number. So if you think about that normal bell curve distribution, right? You have in the, in the center where where it peaks is the is the mean, and then one standard deviation up or down just means that between negative one and one standard deviation, about sixty eight percent of the of your data set will fall within that range. So if it's a really wide data set, you at least know what sixty eight percent will fall within what distance from the mean. And then you can double that to go out to two standard deviations. And if you do that, you know that about 95% uh, is going to fit within two standard deviations. And then somewhere over 99% is going to fit within three standard deviations. So it's just a measure of the variability, right? And so, you know, when we, when we think about how we would apply that to trading and, and the data that's available in Thinkorswim, uh, will often tell you, I think, inaccurate information. And, and it's probably accurate enough for what the way a lot of people are going to trade. Um, but it was, it, it didn't uh, fill all the needs that I had for trying to get the most out of each individual trade and to have a way to quantify what that risk was. So as an example, right? Most people will tell you that one standard deviation from the mean is at about 15 or 16 delta, mm -hmm. which would kind of make sense if, if 15, if, if 16 delta is a 16% chance of being in the money, then that corresponds almost perfectly with half of uh, what's remaining outside that 68% that's in the middle of your bell curve. And, I, and this may be kind of hard uh, to, to picture over the interview, yeah. uh, as opposed to, you know, having a, having a graph in front of you and, and being able to look at it. But what I've found is that for most of the data sets that I'm looking at, um, negative 15 Delta, if we're looking at the put side, is actually closer to two to three standard deviations from the mean. So rather than having a roughly one in six chance of expiring in the money at 15 Delta, I'm looking at it and I'm finding that it's, it's closer to a one in 20 to one in a hundred chance. 
Right. So your your odds of expiring um, in the money are far, far smaller than what we tend to get in Thinkorswim. And Thinkorswim is using some combinations, uh, as I understand it, of looking at the, the data set they're looking at is at the previous year. But there's also something going on with the Black-Scholes formula mm-hmm. um, that I, I won't pretend to understand. But it, um, it seems well, and they're to also looking misrepresent at the, the, far out of the money uh, options. Yeah, they're they're also looking at Thinkorswim is also looking at the volatility and the pricing of the options, and that's why sometimes they'll say, oh, "Oh, options can sort of predict or what the options market is pricing and what's the expected move from the options pricing." So, if you're just right. looking at the put side, um, you would you would be correct in saying that um, your your win rate, if you want to call it that, is a lot higher. It, they are expiring more out of the money uh, at Delta 16. Let's let's talk about that, the one standard deviation. It is expiring out of the money more because essentially the market has sort of an upwards drift over, over time. So that kind of gets me into thinking about standard deviation. If you're thinking of it like a bell curve and the put side, you know, if it's always landing above on the call side, or not always, but most of the time, um, but then at some point you get the COVID crash or some pullback or whatever, and it actually, you know, maybe goes right. below or, or, or something. Do you think that, that the market is just the, the time horizon of the market is just a lot longer? Cause you know, we're talking, when, when we're talking, we're like, okay, um, one out of uh, six trades or whatever the number is. Um, but one out of let's let's call it you know 16 out of 100 trades right 16% that it would fail mm-hmm. uh, but we what we're seeing is that it fails a lot less than that um, on the put side and it's failing a lot more on the call side but then when that when the market does correct or does come come back um, do you think it's more accurate on a longer term horizon i guess is where i'm headed like cuz if you if you tell someone yeah. you have an 80% win rate and they say, oh, okay, I'm going to win eight out of 10 trades. Well, that's not actually true. You're not going to win eight out of 10 trades. It's not that, uh, right. that that's the, that's sort of the least common, you know, denominator or whatever. That's, that's narrowing it down, but you, you might win 80 out of hundred trades, but you could have 10 losers in a row. So if you have 10 right. losers in a row, does that, that blows out your, your eight out of 10 theory, but, but only, only if you're looking at a shorter time frame, you're not kind of thinking about the law of large numbers where you're saying, okay, this is a, a longer time frame. But yeah. so if you're well, if you're saying on the put side that it's a lot, um, uh, it's mispriced, right? Which is why we sell it. Um, and then, but on the call side, you're not trading the call side, and that and is that because it's just the numbers you're seeing, or be, be, are you? Yeah, you yeah. So there's kind of a couple things there. So to maybe go back and answer part of your question. You know, if, if we're trading at 15 Delta, right, to the high side, right, on the call side, right. 15, a positive 15 Delta also appears to be assuming that the mean, right, the, the average movement that the market is going to go through over that period of time is going to be zero. It's going to be where at the money is right now. And historically, right, we've, almost always had longer periods of bull markets. And so if you're in a bull market, you can look back and say, okay, in these conditions, right? uh, What has the market tended to do? When the market is, you know, say, take a really simple one for long-term in the, you take the 200 day uh, exponential moving average, right? That's a pretty common one out there to say, are we generally in a a longer term uh, upswing? you're going to have a mean that is a couple percent uh, onto the call side, a couple percent higher than at the money right now when you look forward 60 or 90 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where I think that a lot of times if that a lot of times we get caught, you know, that, that 50% at the money, if the market on average moves up 3% or 2%, mm-hmm. that's not actually a 50% um, probability it's actually a much lower probability. And so, you know, most of the back tests that I've seen where people have looked at doing at the money uh, option structures, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's butterflies or selling credit spreads, 
they tend to have a much higher win rate than what the deltas uh, express. And, and I think you even did a, uh, you even did a podcast yeah. on that, right? Yeah. So yeah, I had a podcast called our options probabilities BS because it kind of what you're yeah. saying, it, it, you're saying that the call side typically, and it's kind of a funny word is typically underpriced because the market yeah. does move up. Those calls actually increase in value over time, not all the time, but, um, and sometimes it doesn't increase enough to where you actually could expire worthless, but there's too many times and it's not worth the risk as we're kind of gotten to that, that it actually can yeah. blow through those numbers and you can really be in trouble if you're a seller up there. So, right. Yeah. And, and so as a, as a seller, right. What my philosophy really was is that as I was thinking about this and I was looking at all this money that could be made right in back tests and that sort of thing, I said, is what I'm doing having any real value in the world? Because, you know, like how, how um, philosophically, how good do I feel about just, you know, about my purpose in life, if all I'm doing is kind of <laughs> scraping money out of the system, like, what, what am I actually doing? And I got to think about it. It's like, well, no, actually, I'm, I'm a, insurance offers peace of mind, right? If you, when you get fire insurance on your house or you get car insurance on your car, you're not buying that because you're, because you're hoping to make a ton of money when you crash your car. Right. <laughs> nobody, right. nobody looks at it that way. Nobody looks at their insurance on their car at the end of the year and go, well, another year of wasted payments on my insurance. Yes, right. we want our insurance to be as small as possible, but we do it for the peace of mind. That's why we buy insurance. And so in the law and the law. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but there's, peace there's, of, a, there's peace of mind in that. that yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of people. Right? There, there might be some people who disagree with you uh, on that about peace of mind, but that's the it is. I, I understand what you're saying, but but, but yeah, if yeah. you look at why would somebody voluntarily want to buy insurance, right? right? Usually, Life insurance is probably a good example, right? It's for the peace. That's of actually mind. optional. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's for the peace of mind that it that it brings, and so that's what I was realizing that I that I was offering out there. So I it, that and the fact that the uh, uh, the premiums are definitely higher on the put side. Mm. So yeah, so so you you know. This is the first time you 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 mentioned the uh, the purpose, right? So, yeah, I, I've struggled with that too, and I'm probably going to totally hijack our entire conversation with this because I think it's I think it's really important um, because because you have like in the world of you know we're talking about a bunch of math stuff, right? Standard yeah. deviation and probability and you know all these things and and what what does it all mean why does it matter are we just um like you said scraping money from the system and you know if you if you end up automating you know which is where i'm trying to get to at some point doing some automation so at some point if you just have this uh you know quote unquote income machine what what yeah. what do we need you for jeff yeah you know right. what are what are we what are we even doing and so i think that's that's interesting that you found a way to uh, justify, if you will, uh, what you're doing. And I, I, I think that could be the yeah. same for any trader, right? If you're just, especially day traders, if you're buying stuff and selling it a few minutes later, you right. know, what are you really doing? So I think, I think there's a separation of, you know, yes, you can make money in the market, but what you do in your real life can be more meaningful than, and I think that's the goal, right? Like you want to make money, sure so that you can have a more meaningful life and, and contribute in those ways. And if you're making money through, um, you know, quote unquote, hard work, which, you know, you've boiled it down to, it's not a lot of hard work for you. You've done, you did a lot of hard work up front to get to where you're at, but now it's not a lot of hard work. And, um, you know, some, I think there can be some guilt there where you are, you're like, okay, I no longer, you know, for me, I, I, I got out of my job. My, I was a 15 year corporate IT person. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of, and guilt's not the right word, but a little bit of, it's easier for me now. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not a grind. I mean, I, you know, you, you know, all the stuff that I do with YouTube and all this stuff. So I put out a lot of effort with this stuff, but, right. um, but anyway, thanks for bringing that up. I thought that was a, a cool thing that yeah. you added in, you know, you're, you're justifying it. Well, and, and as a, as a piece of this, right. You know, taking, 
uh, taking this ability that I've, you know, cultivated over 35 years or something like that, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. seventh or eighth grade is maybe, maybe only 30 years, but um, you know, and, and what do we, what are we doing with it? I mean, you know, so uh, I've allocated 10% of my, of my gross profits I give to charity. Mm. All right. So that's, that's one of the ways that I'm, that I'm looking at this philosophically and saying, you know, what am I doing um, that's, you know, contributing to society, right? That, you know, I'm off, sure I'm offering insurance to uh, financial insurance to people to give them peace of mind, but also, um, you know, taking this and trying to do something meaningful with it as well. Who do you think you're, so let's, let's keep that example. And I think that's great that you're, um, you know, using some of that money for, for charity. Who do you think you're selling the insurance to? I don't have an answer. Yeah. I'm just more curious about yeah. when you start thinking about that. Cause you know, if you're an right. insurance company and you're, you know, we talked about the actuarial, is that the right word? T- tables sure. about you're like, okay, if you're a, if you're a teenage boy driving a two door sports car, that's red, I'm going to charge you more money. But right. if you're a 28 year old mom with a minivan and two children, I'm going to charge you less money because you know, there's all yeah. these variables there. So, um, so when, who do you think's buying our insurance that we're selling? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, if you look at the mechanics of it, it's the marketplace is really your customer. Um, a lot, I saw a discussion uh, recently about box spreads and how, you know, how it's like, well, who's actually out that far out of the money buying or selling box spreads. And I don't think they are. I think you have different buyers that the, that the market makers and the systems, the algorithms especially, are identifying individual legs and then finding each of your individual legs, say in a, in a, in a simple credit spread, right? You have, a, you have a short put and you have a long put and they're find, finding most likely in separate individual buyers for those, hmm. right? But they're pairing it together and making it into a single transaction from our standpoint, but it, it's likely two transactions that are occurring on the back end. It, let, let's say you were selling at a really big size and you were going to sell a hundred contracts, right. uh, you know, a hundred short puts and a hundred long puts. I don't, think most of us would assume that all hundred are being bought by the same entity on the other end. We would say, well, yeah, you know, some are being bought by, you know, this institution, some are going to be retail, you know, retail traders that are maybe buying their own. You know, the interesting thing you start thinking about this is let's say that, that you sold a credit spread here, you know, up at, uh, I don't know, 4,000 to, um, to 39.95 and then i'm selling I, i'm buying your 39 you know yeah. I, i'm selling to you the 39.95 and i'm then buying the 39.90 right right so we we might actually be buying and selling to each other but the purpose of each of those strikes whether it's a long put or a short put is the same it's either buying insurance or selling insurance right so a credit spread is just a you're selling insurance to the market but then you're buying your own reinsurance which is what all the insurance companies do right they will hedge they will insure their catastrophic loss with other companies and they pay different rates for that so You know, if, yeah, if you don't you know, mind, it, let's jump into an example, maybe yeah, uh, about my approach. Yeah, real quick. Um, yeah, we in my zero DTE group, we we talk about that where uh, we have a, a chat, and we, you know, I'll post. I sold the, you know, forty six ninety, forty six eighty five put spread, and like two minutes later, someone might have, you know, because the price moved and you know, we're looking at one out of the money or whatever the, whatever the set is. Well, as price moves, someone else may get in like two minutes later and, it, and they were, the, you know, now they're like, Oh, I sold you. And people have said in yeah. the group, Oh, I sold you the put and I bought the one lower. So, right. Um, that's it, kind of certainly possible. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So we're So let's talk about reinsurance um, where, you know, we're selling one put to, to collect income. We're the insurance company. And then we're buying a put below there to protect ourselves. This ultimately makes a, a put credit spread. And our goal is to keep the difference between the two. So, um, but we're also sell, uh, buying more protection to reinsure our spread. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing um, to protect your, your insurance company, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, so I have a pretty robust um, kind of 
I think option alpha called it a doomsday hedge, right? right? You know, and it's that it's for those uh, COVID crash moments for, uh, you know, the surprise of Brexit and the, the, the massive increase in volatility and, and the, the drastic drop in a short period of time. So um, simply uh, once a month, I buy some long puts. Long puts on SPX or SPY. Uh, SPY usually just SPY, because of the okay. size of my the size of my accounts. Yeah, I'm not I'm not up to the point where I'm buying. Uh, yeah, it's a, a lot. It's a lot there. And where yeah. where are you buying those? What what I know you don't always look at Delta, but in a general sense, what Delta are you buying? Well, I buy a combination actually, not just of um, uh, long puts on SPY, but um, but I also buy calls on VIX. Okay. And so what I've seen in a lot of my backtesting is that the COVID and Brexit type of events, uh, the VIX responds, uh, the, the VIX calls end up doing better than, say, an SPY uh, long put. And part of the reason is that, you know, again, that general uptrend in the market means that if you bought your put, um, and then a month has gone by or, and I, I started out by going 120 days out. So I buy long puts 120 days out and then 30 days later, those now are 90 days to expiration. And I buy another set of 120 right. and then 30 days later. So I always have kind of four layers uh, mm-hmm. you know, or, or four safety nets, but those, those puts that I bought three months ago, you know, the, I mean, if you look at where the market was three months ago, it's moved a fair amount. And right. so you can, the, the SPY puts oftentimes lose a lot of their value, whereas your VIX calls, depending on where the VIX was when you bought them, it may, it may still be at the same level, right? Because it tends to be much more mean reverting than, uh, than the index itself is. Right. Yeah, yeah. I I'd always... I struggled with that about which one I went with for my uh, 60 DTE spreads. I went with the 120 day put spreads, same, same as I, I'm doing spreads though, but I, so mm-hmm. instead of SPY puts, I do SPX put spreads, um, which I could probably do both. Cause they're, you know, I think for me, it's easier when you have them all together to, it's easier to manage the deltas on how many you're buying with it's the same ticker, but um Sure. But but for your puts, are you buying like Delta five ish? Is it is it that far? It's it's out? been um, for the spy puts. It's it's been around ten to twelve usually. The last okay. handful that I that I've done that I can remember off the top of my head. For um, for the VIX, um, it's tended to be between thirty two and a half and thirty five that I've been buying those. Delta thirty, you're saying? Delta Not 30. no the strike price of thirty two to thirty five. Oh, okay. You're not looking at a Delta. You're just saying. Um, Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your strategy. I know we've kind of been talking around the bush here, but um, yeah. So how, so how do you, how do the, you get there? Right. Yeah. How do you, how do you know what to expect? If you, so if you accept my premise that uh, thinkorswim has inaccurate data, you know, how would you go about looking at this? So I'll start out, I think, by trying to identify where I see the shortcomings. So you know, I look at what I've kind of called statistical expected volatility versus implied volatility or historical volatility. Because historical volatility looks back over the last 20 days, right? If you look at HV on a chart. Mm-hmm. And IV are is largely driven by how people feel, right? What their feelings are. So what I what I'll do is I'll take a look at a at a set of data that I think matches uh, the market conditions today. And then I look at the actual movement of that and I come up with, you know, look, and you can look at one standard deviation, two standard deviation, three, whatever you want to, but it gives you a picture of what the statistically expected volatility is based on these market conditions. Now, again, I think you have to put a little bit of trust into technical analysis, right? Even some of the most simple ones, which I think, you know, clearly the market moves differently over the mid and short term. Uh, when it's above the 200-day uh, EMA or it's below the 200-day EMA, right? Those are going to be two very different worlds. Okay. So what I did was I, I took a look. Uh, when you and I first started talking about this, I, I went ahead and took a look on November 3rd. Uh, at the very end of the day, I looked at January 21st uh, expiration uh, on the SPX. So that was 55 trading days. Okay. Um, and what is that, like 75 DTE roughly. 
So in thinkorswim, the probability of in the money at 16%, it corresponded with a negative 14 delta. So it was kind of right in that same range that we were talking about, 15 delta or so. Right. So that strike price was 41.70, which was 10.5% at the money on November 3rd. Okay. So I said, okay, well, let me, let me look at my first data set. And I had 1,645 days in this data set that matched uh, or that, that matched one set of conditions. In those cases, you had an average movement upward in 55 trading days of 0.93%. So just under 1% increase. So right off, right, it, it, you have that upward movement, that upward drift that we were talking about. And one standard deviation was 10.7%. Okay, so so right off, right, the the standard deviations uh, are really close. It was 10.5% in thinkorswim and 10.7% in my data set. All right. It, now, it didn't take into account the mean. So, so they were off a little bit by, by just under 1%. So that, that negative one standard deviation from at the money came in uh, in my data at 4206, which, again, pretty close, right? It was within 1% movement. The problem that I have with that is that that's the result for when the SPX is below the 200-day EMA. Now, if you go back and you look at your chart, when was the last time that the SPX was below the 200-day exponential moving average? It was May of last year. It was 18 right. months ago. Yeah, COVID. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so and so certainly we we could say, hey, the market behaved an enormous amount differently whenever it has been under the 200-day EMA. And so why would Thinkorswim show us a probability set that matches those, that those conditions that haven't existed for 18 months? So what, so what I did then was I looked at, okay, well, what when we're just above the EMA? And my data goes back to 1993. So I, I've got about 27, 28 years of data in there. Okay. So... It's interesting, right? 1,645 of those days were below the 200-day EMA. 5,233 were above it. And the differences are pretty astounding, right? So the, the average movement when you're above the 200-day EMA is not just below 1%. It's 2.35%. In the same 55 trading days, there's an average increase of 235 for the for the you index, you're, so you're saying for the that index. The, when the when the when SPX is above its 200-day EMA, the average uh, movement over 50, 55 days is positive 2.35 percent. That's what you've seen exactly in the last historically that's 20, a fact. 27 years, right? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I just right. want to point out to all the all the haters who <laughs> yell at me for why I sell close to the money, and this is exactly why I didn't have that piece of data. And I think this is awesome. Um, thanks for sharing that. Okay, I'm going to let you keep going. Yeah. Okay. So the next piece that's even even a bigger deal than that mm -hmm. is remember one standard deviation is just a measure of how how much variation do you have in your data set from that average. And if you remember when we were below the 200-day moving average, it was 10.7%. When you're above the 200 EMA, it's only 5.6%. Mm. So, so again, 68% of your results are plus or minus 5.6% compared to plus or minus 10.7%. So if I were to say, what is 1% down from that arithmetic mean? that 2.35%, one standard deviation is only about three and a quarter percent below the at the money, which is 4507, mm -hmm. not 4206, and definitely not 4170 that thinkorswim was telling you one standard, standard deviation was. So with that data set, if I look at where thinkorswim said one standard deviation was, at 10.5% down, that's actually at 2.3 standard deviations away from the, the mean, away from the average. So statistically, that works out to about a 98% win rate at 41.70. So that's a, 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 a 49 wins for every one loss on average, right? Yeah. The law of large numbers says that you've got a 2% loss expectancy compared to a 16% a 
So, right, one standard deviation implies that you have a one in in sixteen chance of, or I'm sorry, a one in six chance of losing. Okay. This is saying where thinkorswim says one standard deviation is historically. At when you were above the 200-day moving average, historically, you actually have about only a 2% chance of losing. Right. So, so this is the edge, right? This is the, this is the you found your edge, and, you're, and, and let me try to um, sum this up in human terms, because you're, you're, very, <laughs> you're, very, uh, you're a very smart guy, and I totally understand what you're doing. I, I have a hard time speaking in these terms, but, um, but I, I, I'm a listener and reader, and, uh, but but what, what you're saying is, and I found this to be true um, in a lot of my spread trading too, where Thinkorswim is saying, okay, I'm going to sell, in this case, we're looking at a Delta 14 um, uh, option. So the Delta 14 option has about a, an 86% chance of expiring out of the money. Right, because if it's 14, it's about 14% in the money. But really, you can flip that and say uh, Delta is a loose probability of an ex option expiring in the money. So if it's a Delta 14, there's about a I'm going to call it 85% chance that it expires out of the money. Yep. So what your analysis has done is said, hey, um, during these certain market conditions, in this case, you're just using a very simple 200-day EMA. You're saying over the past 27 years for this condition, um, it has a 98% win rate. So that that difference between the what the market's pricing in, which is an 86% win rate, when it's actually a 98% win rate, that that to me is what your your edge is. Do you see it like that, or or is there yeah. something else? Yeah, I see it that way. Absolutely, you, you've got it that part. But let's look at it the other way also there are times when volatility is increasing and those deltas start to move much further away from at the money. Mm -hmm. See, if, if right now Thinkorswim thinks that one standard deviation is 10.5% down, what happens when volatility increases? It's going to move out to maybe 15% right. below at the yeah. money. Yeah, it's, always, again, it's always changing. Right. So, so assume that we move into a uh, situation where we're below the 200-day moving average. Again, my data is, is telling me that one standard deviation is actually only 10.7%, whereas Thinkorswim may be telling you that it's, you know, I don't know what it would actually move to, it may be telling you it's 12 to 15% out of the money. So in those situations, when volatility spikes, what I tend to find is that the combination of the pricing the market has put out there along with uh, the modeling that Thinkorswim uses, and I think most of them use this because it's somehow tied to Black-Scholes, it means I can get closer to at the money than what the market thinks is the probability. And that, when volatility is high, that's when I, I tend to make the most money. So I, the month of October was my best month trading ever. Um, and it's largely because the positions that I was putting on as the market was declining through late September, mm -hmm. and then especially into that, that volatile time in the last week of September and the first week of October, I was trading, I was in some cases, I was actually trading closer to at the money than I had been two weeks before. And so the premiums got really big, but again, it was all in my case, data-based on the conditions that existed. So you go back to what drives the market on the short term. When there is irrational fear, there's an opportunity to sell into to sell peace of mind by selling insurance at a statistically, I'm going to say accurate or statistically um, expected position mm -hmm. that leaves me with a low chance of loss, but then a much higher reward. So it's the example, you know, if let's say you 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 decided you didn't want to buy uh, flood insurance and you live in Houston and a hurricane is coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're likely going to pay a little more for flood insurance in that moment. And you might be willing to pay more for the peace of mind that it gives you. And then, you know, but then a, a week later, the hurricane say moved and it, it didn't end up hitting you. And the, you, know, you got a little bit of rain, but it was no big deal. You know, now, if you wanted to go out and buy, if your neighbor now wanted to go out and buy insurance, they could probably get it for less than what you got it for. 
Right. And that same thing is happening. That same dynamic is happening in the marketplace. So, you know, why did I gravitate towards this? You know, Eric, early on when I was first looking at, uh, I think my very first credit spread I sold, it was on Chipotle mm. and I sold it at 16 Delta and I was like really excited. And, you know, and then I freaked out because I think a couple of days later, the market moved down, like your Chipotle moved down 20 points and, and then it moved back up and everything was fine. But yeah. I saw how that position fluctuated and I started to realize my intuition, my intuition when it comes to these things is horrible. I have just as much irrational fear and exuberance as anybody else does. When I'm looking at the market, I'm seeing either the market going up or I'm seeing it going down. And so that's where I've found for me a kind of safe haven in looking at the historical data. Now, again, right, we always hear the disclaimers that past performance does not predict future results. But what I kind of contend is when I look at the data, when I'm looking at a thousand examples where I have this kind of average with this kind of standard deviation, you know, my, my real question is, what's the catalyst that would make this not be true most of the time? You know, and it would have to be something extreme. It would have to be a global pandemic. It would have to be these completely unexpected moments of uh, Brexit or, you know, a flash crash that triggers a bunch of algorithms and you get some of these runaway selling days. But in those cases, that's where then you have to have some kind of, you know, some kind of black swan event um, hedge or insurance of your own. So when I look at my insurance, I'm insuring the marketplace for a three standard deviation move. That's where I, where I go to. Okay. Right. So if, so I will insure anything above a three standard deviation move, I get to keep, you know, all or most of the premium. Um, my average trading days, I, I, I don't tend to trade any closer than uh, five trading days or one week because you tend to get clusters of volatility that create wider swings um, and more what appear to be black swan e uh, events than, uh, than if you go just a little further out, right? There tends to be some kind of mean reversion. There tends to be some kind of bounce back a lot of times after these big events. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's only for a couple of days and then it continues down, you know, kind of that, uh, what do you call it, a bear flag if you're really getting into mm -hmm. chart reading. Yeah. Um, but those actually, those bear flags give you a chance to get out sometimes at either a very small loss or no loss at all. Um, so I, I'm insuring for, for anything up to a 3%, or I'm sorry, a three standard deviation move in the markets. Beyond that, I have my own insurance. Right. Gotcha. That's great. Um, oh, I really appreciate you sharing uh, your strategy. I know there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover because it's a little bit technical. So um, what we're going to do is I I'm going to post this recording over on the website. It's at stockmarketoptionstrading.net. I'm going to tag you in it under the podcast section. So any of the listeners or other members can kind of chime in. I know you've posted some of your graphics on the site, which is kind of how we kind of got started with this conversation. But yeah, great job, man. I appreciate the you sharing your, your work and maybe uh, we'll circle back up again and see how it's going. Sounds good. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.